welcome. Our guest today is Rob Goring from thinktech.ai. Thank you very much. Really good to be here and appreciate everyone uh, joining this morning. Yeah, for sure. Really excited to have Rob on. We've been kicking around for probably three months to try and get you on. This is how busy this guy is. <laughs> but um, just just for those in the audience and those that haven't heard your name before, I mean, you've been if you've been in Vancouver in tech, you've probably bumped elbows with Rob at some point if you've been around long enough, um, even if you're not meaning to. But but Rob, why don't we just go ahead and kind of get started? To tell us a little bit about yourself and you know your journey as an entrepreneur. I've have a mental note to cap it to to ten minutes because I think we could be here for the whole hour just learning about your history. But yeah, like I'll let you talk for a minute. Yeah, no worries. Thanks very much. And again, I'll, uh, yeah, I will try and keep it as short as I can. So yeah, so my background, you know, I'm actually was born and raised in Vancouver, which is odd. A lot of people, uh, you know, have come here from elsewhere. So the, the benefit of that is I do have a, uh, you know, a long-term network, which is great. But I actually, you know, way back when I, I did um, my undergrad and graduate degrees kind of back-to-back uh, in marketing and technology. And then I actually started my career way back when um, in consulting. So I did a lot of sort of big consulting projects in business process reengineering. Uh, we did system design. We did work at the Vancouver Stock Exchange before it became the TSX and rebuilt their back office, did stuff at the Workers' Compensation Board, did uh, stuff in New York for Chase Mellon Bank. And, uh, and then I kind of got the startup bug as the dot-com, the original dot-com boom that many people on this, uh, this call may or may not remember, but in sort of 98, 99, 2000, the, uh, the first boom in tech. Uh, so I left consulting and, and joined an early stage startup company that was building, um, you know, what at the time was a fax to email system. If you ever remember fax, that was very important. It was one of the most prevalent ways to communicate. And we had a uh, black and white compression technology that made the fax images very small, which was important because not everyone had broadband at the time. If you can imagine a world without immediate broadband. Um, we then it, it scaled that up. We built it, you know, over 240 local points of presence around North America with, you know, massive telecom backhaul and all this network infrastructure and scaled that up. Um, I then got tapped by a uh, U.S. company to help kind of take what they were doing, which is sort of adjacent to that and scale it up. They had just raised $20 million from big VCs, Hewlett Packard, and privately from um, Tim Draper, from Draper Fisher Jurvetson, if you know them as a, as a VC firm, the Draper family were often credited with bringing venture capital to Silicon Valley way back in the day. Uh, we built that company up, uh, scaled it up as well. Um, you had millions and millions and millions of people on our web platform, which again was quite a feat at the time. And then uh, the dot-com boo or bust happened for April 20, you know, 2000. Um, when one was a rough time, a lot of companies collapsed, all of the big web properties, you know, pets.com, all, you know, Webvan, all these companies that were the early high growth companies uh, collapsed. Uh, however, uh, so a colleague and I had another business plan already kind of in the works and we founded another company uh, that uh, eventually became called Contigo Systems, which was a GPS tracking location-based services company. And again, we, we built all this uh, location tracking infrastructure when that was difficult. Nowadays, you just plug into your iPhone or, or Google SDK, grab a location off of a phone and you know, you got you know, two, two lines of code and you're done. We had to build server infrastructure. We had to do uh, telecom uh, backhaul. We had to get devices that actually had GPS chips in them, deploy them. Um, and you know, that was a really great experience. We built that up as well. I think we raised 9 million US over three rounds uh, for some, uh, a couple of VCs, some great angel investors locally here. Um, 
and then eventually sold that company in sort of, I think, 2016. Uh, but early, you know, around 2011, 2012, I exited, uh, stayed on the board and joined a company here in Vancouver called TO Networks. Uh, TO, uh, if you're not familiar with a uh, financial services technology company doing bill payment processing. And we, uh, we were, at the time I joined, we were doing about $5 billion a year in bill payment processing. Wow. And when I left, we were doing about $9 billion. Um, so a lot of cash management, actually helping people mostly in the U.S. that were had to pay their bills with cash, so low to moderate income, or people that don't have bank accounts, what they called the unbanked or underbanked, uh, which is a little different in Canada. Most people have a bank account. In the U.S., there's like 90 million people that don't even have a bank account. So we helped facilitate that, uh, scaled that up, uh, started to acquire a couple companies. Um, ultimately, that company is acquired by PayPal. Um, Prior to the PayPal acquisition, I actually uh, was recruited to run a marketing tech company called RewardStream that was a, a sort of high-scale referral marketing company. We did a lot of enterprise work with AT&T, Sprint, Telus, a lot of telecoms. Um, and again, ultimately sold that to a UK-based company. And then I got into doing a lot of the AI stuff. That brings me here today. So with Think Technologies, we are a big data AI analytics platform. So we have a product and a platform called Provada, which uh, ingests and manages massive amounts of external data from around massive global data sets, news, social, cyber breach, dark web data, et cetera. And we bring it into one platform to help enterprises manage risk and predict things that they may need to know uh, relevant to their business. So I'll pause there. So that's, uh, that's sort of the, 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 uh, <laughs> the high parts of the waves. I've done a lot of work with a lot of startups over my time, advised them on a number of uh, AI company boards and other things like that as well. So which I'm sure we'll dive into. For sure. So no, I really appreciate that background. So we already have a question from the audience. Um, obviously, with your experience, and in, in it seems like both software and hardware companies, and probably I'll add on to the fact that you've probably advised dozens of, of startups as well, probably in both sectors. Um, specifically, I think I think this question is leaning towards the, the hardware space. What's the biggest differences or lessons or advice when you're trying to build something with hardware components? Hardware is difficult. Yeah, you know, we actually, when we, when we exited Contigo, uh, my co-founder and I, we sort of lamented, we're like, I wonder if I would ever do anything with hardware again. Uh, there's huge opportunity because hardware is hard. It's hard, it's hard to do whether you're- It's in the name. Building, exactly, it's, it's right in the name. Well-branded. Uh, you know, if you, are, if you are building your own hardware and you've got, you know, low-level uh, capabilities, you know, to build chipsets or ASICs or, you know, whatever it happens to be, Clearly, that can be a huge source of very powerful competitive differentiation. Um, you know, if you are doing what we did, which was integrating with hardware devices from other manufacturers, it brings a different host of challenges because now you're dealing with, you know, with hardware, you're not just dealing with software that, you know, many software engineers can deal with. You're dealing with firmware. You're dealing with, um, you know, low-level low machine code. You're dealing with, you know, small, small amounts of memory, high performance. You're dealing with potential environmental considerations. In our case, we were dealing with devices that were either in vehicles or on assets out in the middle of a field, you know, subject to environmental conditions, required battery, required power. You have to, do a, you have to deal with uh, energy and consumption. You have to deal with all sorts of things. So um, hardware, again, can be a massive source of, of a huge differentiation, but it is very, very difficult. So, um, and I'd even get into the supply chain part. You know, how do you actually build it um, at scale, at the right price, you know, with your, they often call your bomb, your bill materials, how do you get the cost down? How do you get scale? How do you get into a channel? How do you market it? 
Um, mm -hmm. So, so it's very, it's, it's a much different, much more complex beast for sure. Yeah. I'm just trying to read into the question a bit more. I think, I think where, where this, this question is coming from is, is really like so much of the startup advice and even on this platform here, like that, that we drop and we say things like, like fail fast and, you know, throw away stuff that doesn't work and then go on to stuff that works. Like it's a lot harder to do that when every time you're throwing away, you're throwing away $40,000 a tech or, you know, whatever it is. Right. So, so if you are building a hardware startup, like what are some, some kind of advice some pieces of advice that that would pertain more to those folks, right? Because I think we're going to, even today, we're going to get through a lot that I think is more, more relevant for, for software because sure. stuff just goes faster. Right. Yeah. Um, um, and in terms of timelines of things like raising money, right? Like we talk a lot about like how, how you should, you know, try and prove some initial traction first. That's hard when I don't have the money to build the hardware. Right. And, and so like from your experience, how, how does that kind of play in? Like what was validation looking like for you? Right. As opposed to, you know, it's not customer validation because you haven't, you haven't built the thing yet. Right. But you need to raise money in order to get validation. Um, and it's kind of this kind of chicken and egg thing that kind of happens. Absolutely. And, and the timing to your point earlier is really a, a much bigger challenge with hardware because you have these typically much longer cycles. If you are actually building something, um, you know, you, you generally will need more capital. Uh, my recommendation would be if you are actually looking to build something or, or you have built something that you want to absolutely have on your team, people that have been there and done it. You, if you are, you know, going to use a contract manufacturer, you know, absolutely make sure you're working with people, you know, and trust, um, you know, it, there's so much risk in, in that area because the cycles are long. Uh, you know, that, that would be my, my biggest advice is not just so much to a, to a software company, really the, the people and the intelligence and the smarts around the table are really going to, to help you succeed or fail. Um, the, the, the hardware side of the game, you know, you definitely also need different investors. You need different uh, sources of capital. Uh, your, your minimum viable product is a very different approach than, than with software. It is very hard to get you know, to get product market fit, you can have a hypothesis, but to know your hardware gets there or not can be a huge amount of capital and you can get there. Again, if you've got the background, you can do it. Just make sure you got the right manufacturing partners. You've got the right uh, people that can spin things quickly. There is a lot of innovation since I was involved in it in terms of, you know, building out uh, components quickly, turning things around quickly, assembling them quickly. Uh, there are these small footprint, you know, contract manufacturers that can do things quickly the 3d printing world has brought a lot of innovation in that space as well for prototypes yeah um, but certainly it, it is a whole different business model uh, for sure so so definitely maybe just to pick your brain a little bit about the your experience with contigo like what what was the the kind of step-by-step -step now obviously looking back right like did you guys raise money first and then build the prototype or or did you personally invest and then, and then build the prototype and then go fundraise and, and what was like getting that first? Yes. Like, yeah, we, you know, we started the company in the darkest of days, right? This was right on the, literally the day after all of the, uh, the world went to hell in a handbasket for, you know, for early stage tech companies. So we, we did, we, we bootstrapped it for quite some time in, in our particular case, because we had a hardware component that was going to be a device in the field that was, mm -hmm alerting its location we also had a software component is we had to be very innovative in our in our approach to demonstrate the use case and to show how it could work 
And so yeah. to the benefit, we, we were able to build software that demonstrated the, the work. We, uh, you know, sort of not, not quite ashamed to say it, but you have to do what you got to do. You know, I remember we were pitching to Qualcomm because Qualcomm mm -hmm. was building the devices and the chipsets. And so we, we'd actually built a fake demo. You know, we had, uh, we'd pre-recorded a vehicle driving around and we then were able to play that back in real time in the demo. And so, you know, you got to fake it until you make it. Um, that, was, that was one thing. But looking back on it, because again, we weren't building hardware and we were sourcing hardware, if we had to do anything different, I, I, would, have, uh, I would have gone with multiple suppliers faster and I would have held them to a higher standard earlier on in terms of what they were to deliver. Because again, you're not dealing with just hardware, you're dealing with, you know, firmware. And, you know, at this point, like an SDK, equivalent of like an API, like what's the SDK or the software development kit you have to use to interact with that hardware. And a lot of the hardware people, if you work with a contract manufacturer, they think in hardware, they don't think always in software. So you, you find that the hardware interface, the software interface of the hardware is quite uh, challenging. We, we were working at the end with some huge global manufacturers and, you know, this sort of little company in Vancouver, we would find all their bugs and they were shocked to the bugs we would find because they just didn't have a really good approach to, to quality. They kind of said, oh, the software guys will figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not, you know, I'm not sure that fully answers your question because again, ours was a bit, bit of a different For thing, sure. but, but you really have to be very innovative to think about how you can demonstrate these things uh, for fundraising folks. For sure. And I mean, on, on the topic of fundraising, I kind of want to, want to shift gears a little bit because, because I think it's, it's rare that, that I get someone on the other side of the seat that's kind of gone through full journeys, twice fold, three times fold. Right. Um, some, some, some people listening on, on the call are going to have some experience fundraising. Um, less people have experience with, with putting companies on the public market with reward streams. You guys, you guys went to IPO. Like just to start from there, could you explain like, well, why did you guys do that at that time? What was that process like? And I guess from a very general level, like would would you recommend they like what kind of scenario would you recommend a founder look at that scenario? For sure. And, and I'll kind of maybe approach it in two ways. So with mm -hmm. uh, think technologies and a number of their AI companies I'm on the board of, we're all in various stages of taking these companies public as mm -hmm. as young junior early companies. It's not for everyone. I'll come back to that. Uh, reward stream was a very interesting experience um, that maybe is unique. You know, I was brought in by the board. The company had been around for a very long time. Uh, they'd started in 1999. I was brought in in 2014. And, and this, this kind of goes to maybe some other very interesting points is the cap table. So the capitalization table, the shareholder base, and the way mm -hmm. the cap table is structured with reward stream, unfortunately, it was a mess because it had been around for a long time. And this is a very common early stage company challenge. And I think one of the most important things for founders to think about, you know, and, and educate themselves on if they're not already is cap table management. We can come back to that. Uh, so with RewardStream, because they'd been around for so long and had talked to VCs and investors and had taken investor money over 15 years, uh, the cap table was a mess. It was upside down. It had a really horrible option pool structure. It had overhang, it had all of these horrible things. So actually taking it public was one of the only alternatives because by taking it public, we could uh, clean up the cap table a fair bit. Um, the process of taking a company public is, uh, is a very, you know, kind of, it, it's, a, it's a challenging road for sure. Um, 
uh, maybe I'll pull back, you know, like 100,000 feet a little bit on the public markets. Um, what's very interesting from a trend standpoint right now and why the, there is a, a flow again to the junior public markets is if you think back again, not everyone knows it, but in, in the 2000, 2001 timeframe, when all these tech companies went public, had these massive valuations and it was a huge bubble and the bubble burst, it burned a lot of investors. And so a lot of people, sort of my vintage um, VCs, investors, and others uh, shied away from the public markets for a very long time. The number of public mar public companies in North America shrunk from something like 8,000 to 4,000. And that was not an um, interesting market opportunity. Everything was VC, private equity, et cetera. What's shifted very interestingly in the last little while is, uh, you know, with, with near 0% interest rates, there's a lot, of, a lot of large investors have nowhere else to make their money. So a lot of people are moving to equity. Young people have come on board with, in Canada, Wealth Simple in the US with Robinhood. I think we've all watched the GameStop craziness a couple of months, a couple of weeks ago. Um, there's an eye on the public markets. And then a lot of US companies have returned to doing IPOs or SPACs, if you've heard of the Special Purpose Acquisition Corporations. The SPAC concept in the US is just a really supersized version of what we've done in Canada for 25 years by taking younger companies public early. Um, so from an advice standpoint, you know, what I always say um, is, you know, going, building a, an angel backed or a venture backed company, a private company is like a small team sport. Doing it in the public markets is like an orchestra. And so there's all of these disparate areas that have to come together that often wouldn't talk to each other. So as the CEO or the founder of an, of an early stage company going public, uh, you know, you really are running two companies. You're running a public company and you're running the private company. So it can divide your attention quite a bit. And there's a lot, lot more hands in the pie, so to speak. But there are some advantages. You know, we've seen some of these, you know, like Well Health, um, you know, Canadian publicly traded company. Hamid Shabazi founded that. He was the founder of TO Networks. You know, he's built well from nothing to a one and a half billion dollar market cap company in three years. So the public markets, now that there's a, a strong trend, provides, you know, capital in a different way. It's not as hands-on. So unlike when you have an angel investor or a VC that writes a check and they're on your board and they're, they're you know, you're talking to them all the time. In the public markets, it's a little more distributed. So you don't have a concentrated focus of someone's attention on you. Uh, you can kind of run your business a little more on your own and you can often tap into capital and resources to, to get scale a lot faster. So it's a, you know, it's a very, um, they're very different. I wouldn't always recommend it for a lot of folks, but there's certainly some benefit to it. Is there, are there specific industries that would benefit more from, from going IPO earlier than your expected kind of you know, seed series A, series B, series C, et cetera, then IPO versus, you know, jumping a couple of steps. Are there specific industries this is relevant for? Yeah, the, you know, the good and the bad of the public markets and the junior public markets in Canada is, you know, there is a trend element associated with it and the trends can blow with the wind. Um, so, you know, one of the, frankly, one of the challenges we had with the reward stream is we, we raised a couple million bucks, we took a public, in I think August, early August of 2016. And about two weeks later, all of the Canadian federal government announcements about recreational cannabis came out. And because no venture companies, no private companies could invest in cannabis companies due to venture capital restrictions on the funds, the public markets were the perfect way to raise money. So 
every cannabis company in Canada flowed to the public markets. So if you weren't a cannabis company for about a year and a half or two years there, it was really hard to get someone's attention. So that's a, that can be a risk. So right now there is a return to tech. You know, the, the Canadian public markets have been very resource oriented, of course, forever, you know, mining, oil and gas, things like that, speculative investments where they need money. But in the tech markets, um, you know, cannabis is still there. Uh, psychedelics are very, uh, very hot right now. But in tech, uh, AI is quite hot. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. why there's a group of us kind of creating a critical mass in yep. there. Um, SaaS companies, if you do have a strong, you know, and growing recurring revenue base, um, that's a great opportunity. There is a trend kind of ignited by Hamid at Well around acquisitions. So if you mm -hmm. are in a market, in particular like a SaaS market where um, there's an ecosystem where you've got a great run rate and you've got great SaaS margins, you know, your, your 70, 80% margins recurring and stable, and you've got the opportunity to maybe go acquire companies adjacent to you or in your area that you can roll up, huge opportunity. But again, it's a bit of a different business model. So in the public markets, you do have to be very aware of and try and read the tea leaves a little bit as to where things are at currently. Um, but you'll see, you know, digital health, telehealth, huge, AI, huge. Uh, a lot of the big data uh, is very big. You know, again, a lot of SaaS, recurring revenue, uh, very, very big right now. Um, and a lot of future looking things. A lot of the early market investors are speculative. So they will place bets on earlier stage companies that they think have a huge opportunity down the road, which is great for folks like us. Awesome. So it's just, just one more question, I think, on on the IPO and going public, more, or I guess it's a two-part question. I guess for, for those that are listening that are thinking about it, what, I, I guess, part A is what are the kind of like the approximate costs and, and you know, some things to keep in mind is, is you know, you you start to approach that that method. And I think, I think in, alongside that is like, what, what do people know? Like, let's say I have a company and I'm in a position where that's one something I'm thinking about. Like, what what are my, you know, analysis like? Like, what's the benefit? weakness like what should i go like what are some indicators that i should go ahead and some indicators that i should step back and rethink it sure so maybe again i'll quickly go through sort of the stack almost mm -hmm. if you think about the canadian markets as a junior early company there are two markets there's the canadian securities exchange the cse mm -hmm. uh, and then there's the tsx venture exchange those are the two junior markets uh you know love them both the cse is a little more entrepreneur friendly a little easier to get an earlier stage kind of company up and running and a little less expensive. The TSX V has been around a lot longer. They inherit a lot of historical policy requirements from their, their the big, the big brother of the TSX, the full board. Um, mm -hmm. But then you also deal, so you deal with the exchanges. You also deal with the securities commission in many cases. Um, there are generally a handful of ways to go public. One is an IPO where you do an initial public offering. You take your company, uh, raise money and take it public. Um, there, the other method is what's often called a reverse takeover or an RTO, which is akin to like the SPAC model in the US where there may be a public entity that is either, you know, was something else um, and is now just a publicly traded company looking to do something new. Um, or they're on the TSX in particular, the TSXV, there's a program called the Capital Pool Company Program, CPCs, where a CPC company is what they call a blank check company, like the yep. US SPACs, where SPACs. that company, their entire business plan is to raise money, take it public, 
and then have some money in the bank to then go hunt around for a company to reverse into it. And that's the whole business of a CPC. It's just like a SPAC in the US. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there's all these different methods. Um, and then there's some more uh, esoteric methods underneath that, but we won't, we won't go there. Uh, to your point, um, you know, some of the things to be really considered of is cost. You know, uh, you know, $100,000 to $200,000 is generally a very standard budget you have to think about to go public. If you do work with a, a shell company or a CPC, often they will have the, they should have the funds to cover many of the costs, but usually even as the private entity, you have to cover your own legal costs to some extent, which can be you know, 30, 40, $50,000 or more. Um, there's a whole bunch of other paths. We could probably spend an hour or more on this entire process, but mm -hmm. just leave it be that there's a whole other series of paths, but you got to kind of think of the budget. The other thing that's very important um, is from a financial disclosure standpoint, you, as a private entity, you do need to have audited financial statements. So if you are considering this in any way, shape or form, make sure your financial statements are in order and it's easy to get them audited. Um, so if you don't have a, a good bookkeeper, an accountant or a, a CA, CPA helping you with that, you'll wanna start thinking about getting your house in order. With RewardStream, our, our board at the time that were all private guys, um, we're very well organized. So when I stepped into that company, we had actually been audited, which is kind of rare for a private company to, to waste the time being audited, but we had that ready to go. That can be a stumbling block for a lot of companies when they all of a sudden realize they've got two shoeboxes full of receipts for three years and they don't know what to, you know, they don't even know how to start an audit. So there's right. a bunch of pre-work. Um, and then it can take, it can take many months, right? It can take a minimum of three months up to six months or more to really get through the process. There's a bit of a dance you have to kind of, kind of do. So, yeah. And that's um, probably best case scenario, right? The three months. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it does take time and you want to like, if you're, if you're talking to angel investors or VCs, you know, you'll want to really know and trust the people you work with. Cause certainly there are good VCs and bad VCs. There's good angel investors and bad angel investors. And there's good people in the public markets and bad people in the public markets. So you kind of really want to, uh, to be considerate in that, in that kind of stage. Now you did have a second half of your question, which I've forgotten. <laughs> well, well, I think the second half was more, more just about like, what are some indicators that, that we should pursue this versus we shouldn't. Right. So, um, you know, there's strategy and then there's, you know, um, sort of what your goals are. I think the public markets are very good. If you have a desire to, you've got a very strong vision, you've got a desire to go really big and you've got the, you know, energy and, and sort of enthusiasm people around you to, to go very big. The public markets work the best if you think quite big, because you want to think about, you, you, you know, you don't want to think about raising, you know, $250,000 getting to a milestone, raising $500,000 getting to a milestone and then raising 2 million and getting to a milestone. You want to think about um, taking your business and figure out how you can supercharge its growth. Again, whether that's um, you're at a point in time where pouring a lot of you know, capital on can help you accelerate your growth. Or um, again, as a public company, if you've managed your public structure really well and your public stock price goes up, you now have a public uh, currency with your shares to make acquisitions. So you don't have to write, you know, you don't have to put cash out necessarily. So you want to think quite big and quite strategically around that. Um, so those and that trend um, of, you know, growth organically and then growth inorganically is kind of quite, you know, you know, on trend 
right now in the public markets. Um, yeah. So I think those are good indicators. Um, if you've got the, the wherewithal to, and, and a lot of the contacts in the industry, you know, you can certainly do what we're doing and take the company public even pre-revenue. It, it's a different struggle, uh, different mm -hmm. set of challenges, but certainly can be done. But if I were to like provide the, the top tier recommendation, I would say you've got strong recurring revenue, high margin, you know, high growth, uh, you know, a capital injection will help you scale dramatically. And you've got the opportunity to kind of scale inorganically through, through acquisitions. That would be sort of probably sort of a perfect playbook. For sure. Nothing's perfect. So, but that's sort of the, the ideal. <laughs> that's the ideal, right? Yeah. No, and, and I really loved how you kind of explained, like there are differences between, between public markets in, in Canada and versus US. So to scale that back, like what about what about your experience with, with investors, like US versus Canadian investors? And actually, we're going to talk a lot more about this next week when we bring in uh, Chris Newman from Commonwealth VC. Right. But, but your experience, like I... Th I, I don't know exactly your whole investor list, but I think you've had Canadian and U.S. investors in the past. What was the yeah. difference in in how to approach those guys? Right, like, what, did you change how you told the story? How much money you were raising? Like, what what, what was what's happening there? Yeah, definitely. I, I think you know, and this is not new. I, I think it just echoes probably what everyone has heard. You know, for good or for bad, you know, American VCs and you know, sort of a lot of the American ethos in general is go big or go home, and so there is this swing for the fence mentality, uh, you know, poor capital in the blitz scaling concept from Reed Hoffman and others, you know, that sort of idea is very well regarded and people are less concerned if they, if you tried hard and did all the right things and lost all the investor money, no harm, no foul, we might even fund your next deal. In Canada, you know, the, you know, and this, I hate to bash Canadian VCs, but generally you know, it's a little more risk averse. It's a little more, uh, you know, managing downside risk instead of upside opportunity that has shifted over the years. And there are a handful of very, very good VCs in Canada that now think much more like the US VCs and even partner with, you know, US VCs. Like, yeah, I think you've had, you've had Boris Wirtz on before, like Boris yep. is one of those guys, right? He's the, the most kind of US oriented, you know, sort of big thinking strategic uh, VC I can think of. Um, but definitely, the, you know, we have seen a lot of companies with, with two different pitch decks. Um, you know, you, you often it's hard to be in market with two different, you know, raises and the size of raise. Um, yep. You will generally get a higher valuation out of a VC in the U.S. That has some good and some bad. Sometimes it, it results in bigger shoes you have to fill. And yep. if you go to do your next round, you know, there can be some downside risk of now you, if you didn't get to the milestone, you you know, you swung for the fence for, you may have a down, a down round and that can be dilutive and challenging. Um, you know, I, because I haven't done a VC round in Canada for a little while, I'll speak from a, some little older experience. The terms were a little more challenging. You know, the, if you got, you know, a preferred round, you know, you might do your, your safe, you know, or your convertible, the, the first bit, but when you get to your, your series A, series B, and you're getting into a preferred set of equity, the terms are a little more challenging. You might have a, you know, participation preference still. You might have a liquidity preference. You might have some more of these challenging things that, again, I'll come back to cap table management. As a early stage entrepreneur, you really want to understand all of that stuff, and you want to do the math because there are it's, there's just the time time and time again, an entrepreneur might have an opportunity to sell their company only to realize that they've raised a couple rounds of funding and the Series B preferred get their money out first. The series A 
get their money out next. And the common shareholders who are generally founders may get nothing, even though they sold their company for $30 million or $50 million. So that's a, a challenging story. So cap table management, one of those important things. So, I mean, definitely on cap table management, I think we can come back to it now. Like, obviously when you just start a company, Sam starts company A, you know, cap table is a big fresh Excel sheet with my name on it. Right. Yeah. Um, where do you see companies seeing it starts to go messy and, and it actually requires, you know, dedication and focus to like, you know, I actually got to think about this. What, what's that turning point like, and what are mistakes people are making in, in, in having messy cap tables? Yeah, it's a great question. I, and I think there's, you know, a, a handful of common issues that hurt that happen so often. Um, it, it's often hard to avoid, but worth thinking about. You know, the first stage is if you're a single co-founder and you want to bring on a partner, mm -hmm. um, you know, or you have co-founders, you know, understanding that equity split is very important. And also thinking about, uh, like, you know, it's like when you get into a relationship at the beginning, everything is all really good. And that's the best time to negotiate the divorce, you know, is at the beginning when everyone is uh, friendly and happy. So if you have a shareholder agreement or a partnership agreement, understanding and having a, a defined process by which if one of the partners needs to exit and it's still very early or they haven't contributed their value or you know you've got a way to unwind their share position or you know uh, buy it back or cancel shares so there's you know whether you know whether it's reverse vesting schedules there's many many mechanisms again uh, brock smith who i think helps you guys out a lot um you know on the legal side is well versed in a lot of these things but you really want to think about that um, because things happen, right? You know, COVID is a great example. How many people, you know, moved or changed locations or had a family situation come up uh, where they, they've had to leave the country or do something else. And all of a sudden they can't do something or have a family emergency or have a kid and their, their life changes. All of these things you can't even think of happen all the time. So the first step is when you bring on a partner or co-founder thinking about that. The next step is again, thinking about your staff and your team. You know, obviously you want to have equity incentives for your staff and your team. And this is where option plans with vesting schedules, uh, RSUs, restricted stock units, you know, all the different ways you can provide equity incentives to your, to your early stage staff and beyond. Very, very important. Um, but then the next part, of course, is when you take your first uh, external money, whether that's family and friends, angel money, or, or an actual VC round, you know, I'm sure as everyone's looked, there are stages, you know, um, family and friends money often come into the common share pool. So they're treated similar, you know, in the same fashion to founders. Um, some, you know, when you go to an angel round, you know, you may start getting into preferred shares. Maybe you're doing a safe, you know, like a Y Combinator safe agreement, um, you know, some agreement for future equity, you know, which is very friendly in many ways, but also has a series of no man's land situations where you can get into, you got to watch for. Um, and then of course, when you get into the equity side, if you, if you, if I'm talking about things that people aren't super familiar with, one of the best books to read is by Brad Feld and it's called Venture Deals. And uh, Brad Feld is one of the founders of um, the Foundry Group out of Boulder, Colorado. They're a, they do a lot of tech stars and a lot of, you know, venture investments. He's a super good guy. He wrote a book that lays all of this out and he's updated it over and over. Um, if you don't know some of these terms, you should read that book. And there are platforms now like Carta and other ones that do the cap table management for you because sometimes the math can get kind of esoteric, you know, and understanding what it really means if you've got a one and a half liquidity preference and a participating preferred and 
you know, a ratchet clause and all this stuff, it can get a little weird. Uh, so sometimes if you don't know how to do math, you can use one of these systems now to do it for you. Awesome. I'll pause there. Lots, no, for, lots to unpack there. There's again, that's, there, that's a whole other hour. Sure. <laughs> that's the, I mean, that, that's why it was hard coming up yeah. with questions because <laughs> yes, I think right. there's so many angles we could go. Right. And, and I think, I think from, from a listener standpoint, I think we're, we're trying to touch on as many topics that it is a very shallow level, right? Like Rob's giving, Rob giving introductory comments, but if any of these guys, any of these, you know, you know, hit, hit different for you and, and you're thinking and you're, you're having multiple questions that come up, I think that's a good chance to kind of reach out to someone like Rob um, to have more expansive conversations. Obviously we can't go through cap table management in just an hour. I mean, you just said there's books about this. There's, there's mm-hmm. courses about this, right? Like people spend full-time hours just talking about one subject. Right. Um, but, but I think one just super simple takeaway, if nothing else, is that I think when you start a company, you're obviously thinking of best case scenarios, right? Like you talked about vision, you talked about dreaming big, um, but I think a big takeaway that I got from your description is that, you know, you also have to think about not the worst case scenarios. Well, yeah, the worst case scenarios as well, right? Like if, if founders split apart, they don't work well together. Um, you bring on an investor and the investor wants to, to exit earlier or something like that. Like having those, having those different situations that come up um, and being prepared to, to an appropriate level, I would say, like, you can't prepare for literally everything, but like you, like you couldn't prepare for a pandemic coming in two years, two years ago. Right. Um, but, but sometimes things change that you weren't expecting to, um, where I want to shift in my attention is, is you also had two companies that, that exited the required, right. Um, were those hard decisions at the time? Like when you joined or, or built the company, like, were you thinking like, oh, I'm just going to take this to, to big and bigger and biggest? Um, or was there always an exit plan in place? Um, maybe describe that a little bit, because I think that's an interesting story as well. Yeah, and it's a great, um, it's a great sort of just broad lesson, you know, because I think it, it's one of these dichotomies you have to have as an entrepreneur. You know, I think, you know, everyone will tell you if you start a business to flip it or to sell it, you know, it, it rarely works out that way. Um, if you start a business, you have, you know, core knowledge and you've, you've got a real problem you're solving and providing real value. That is always the best place to focus. And, 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 you know, this is the, uh, you know, a, a paradox. And if you start to think about and map out and scenario plan where your company could go, it starts to inform the business partnerships you do, the companies you work with and don't work with, the types of investors you bring on. You know, it's often very attractive possibility to bring on, you know, a strategic investor that's maybe another tech company. But you got to think about, well, does that then block out the other five? Because they won't want to work with you if you got a strategic investment from, you know, Amazon for whatever reason or Google. And that that happened a lot in, say, e-commerce. You know, Amazon put money into a few, few companies and people said, I won't deal with you because Amazon is just going to, you know, look at all the data and, and ask for all this information and, you know, take it over. So um, the decisions for, for us, yeah, I think generally, you know, you build a company to try and scale it. And, and if you do a great job, opportunities come along the way. I think one of the best examples, though, of scenario planning, I'll tell a little story, is one of our lead angel investors at Contigo, and this goes way back, was a gentleman named uh, Greg Pete. Greg had been the CEO of a company called ALI Technologies, that sold, I guess, in a long time ago, 2003 or 2004, for $540 million, which at the time in BC was the biggest all-cash deal in BC history. And that was one of his big strengths. And what he kind of imbued upon us for the years we worked with him was 
they kept they had a strategic plan that they looked at every six months. Uh, this day and age, it should be every three months. Things move a little faster now. Mm-hmm. And he identified, you know, he said we identified, you know, seven different paths the company could go, and we'd constantly iterate on it. And ultimately, that helped with their strategy, and they ended up selling to, you know, one of the, one of the top two firms they anticipated would be an acquirer for them, and it worked out. So you can kind of almost back into some of these things too. But I, I think definitely build the scale, uh, build to great, you know, build a great business that solves huge problems for people. Um, you know, think about your strategic investors and, uh, and opportunities will, will come. Yeah. And then, and then from, from your experience, was it like something you had planned for, like you were always going to exit at some point um, or, or was it something like an offer you can't refuse? <laughs> yeah, I think for us, um, you know, a lot of this comes down to a personal thing too. I'm, I am a builder. And so my, my psychology and the things I like is the earlier stage. I like the, the messy beginning where you got to figure things out and, and the sometimes messier middle where you have to then put it all together and, and figure out your product market fit and your customer discovery and your 500 phone calls and all the things that get you there. And that's the part that I really like. So I don't enjoy as much, you know, finally tuning knobs and, and things to get another 2% here, another 5% there. So when we, with these companies got to a certain scale, and they became more of an operating business where, you know, the, the next set of scale was, was more around increasing gross margins or other things. Uh, my interest tends to go back to the early stage startup side. So for me, that, that was more of a, a personal thing. Yeah. Um, cer- certainly though, it, it uh, you know, it all depends. You know, we'd always had the back of our mind to think about how we could exit because that, that helped us also refine the focus of value. Are we delivering on value that will be, you know, um, you know, truly beneficial, not just to the market, but will, will someone else value that because we're, we're solving a big problem. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, on the, on the early stage side, I actually have a question here from, it says, hi, Rob, we are an early stage customer facing AI startup, uh, moving to Vancouver with the more fierce conversation and ever shrinking slices of consumer attention and then more democratization of AI training. Um, they're starting to see more value in sales marketing strategy versus the actual AI tech alone, right? And I think, you know, there's probably a question in there already, but that's not the end. So, so for, hit, for, for this person, like, are, do you have any concrete sales and marketing tips for early stage customer companies? Um, like, are there, are there things that they can do with, with sweat equity and time versus, say, hiring with marketing agencies, so on and so forth? Yeah, I think, you know, I think the biggest thing, and in particular, you know, in AI, because it's near and dear to my heart, we've had a lot of these conversations. I, um, I chair the AIC council, the chief executive council for the BC Tech Association. So I do a lot of work with them. Also the AI network of BC group and another working group. So these are actually questions we talk about a lot. What's very interesting is in particular in AI, if you're an early stage AI company, uh, yeah, there's been a lot of democratization, um, but there's a lot of opportunity with you know demonstrating the, the power you know of ai what's general for early stage companies though is i would focus on product market fit you know and making sure that you've got uh, a really it's that nail it nail it then scale it like make sure you really are solving problems there um you know i i would you know what i would do i'm a product guy at heart too in product management in product strategy there's this old axiom of 500 phone calls i mentioned a minute ago you know, if you, if you, you know, the customer discovery phase, you know, making sure that before you spend a lot of time, energy and effort 
with engineers coding things, make sure that what you're building and talking about has value. And you can do that without building a lot of tech. So focus there first, for sure. Um, again, specific to AI companies, uh, you know, there's a little bit of what we call AI theater sometimes. And if you are selling your product based off of the AI advantages, then even though like sometimes the AI is hard to see because it's sort of the magic part. So sometimes adding a little AI theater into your demo or into your product that makes it look like the AI is doing something visually uh, can go a long way. But sometimes the other part is, is even more valuable is just saying the AI is behind the scenes and focusing on the, on the problem you solve, right? That, that can be so important. But yeah, going back to the you know, early stage stuff, it's all about product market fit, right? And it's all about getting the, the best response from a customer with spending as little money as possible, which can be done with outreach, with phone calls, with the best thing about COVID, I think, is that people will, from around the world, will jump on Zooms now uh, and they'll, you can get access to companies that you couldn't get access to before. So do Zooms, you know, demonstrate things, mock them up, show them people, get their feedback uh, and, you know, and then you can scale from there. For sure. And, and I think that doesn't just relate to AI. I think I can for relate sure, yeah. to that for, for blockchain companies as well. Like, like a lot of that is, is I think I, I, I've seen the, the debate go from like, do you want to label yourself as a blockchain company versus like, you know, we have blockchain tech, but our solution is our solution. And we want to talk about that. Right. Um, I think AI can be the same way. Like, do we advertise AI as like the front facing part of our company, or is it just, you know, we solve a specific problem for you, how we do it only if you care. Right. Right. Um, so for, for sure, um, from, from that angle, like what else are you seeing? Maybe, maybe more on this, this earlier stage, um, companies. And, and I think I want to expand that, like, because I think earlier stage companies, the, the biggest problem, like you mentioned is product market fit, trying to find a fit in that market. Um, not exactly early stage, but companies that are transitioning over to new markets, right? They experience similar problems, but the difference is they've had the experience of winning in market A already. Right. But let's say they're trying to hit Canadian or North America as a market and successfully they've been doing stuff in Asia or somewhere else. What are some pointers that you have for companies like those when they're approaching? I guess we'll, we'll focus on it on North America or for, just for the sake of your conversation, your experience. Right. Um, what are some things that they need to, to do to actually start getting into the market? Is it net new? Right. Like just the same way you would start a, a brand new company early on in, in Vancouver or the States or something like that. Or are there advantages they can take advantage of because they're already proof market, market fit product market fit in uh, another area? Yeah. It's a great question. And I, I think one of the foundational again, uh, books and, or reads here that remains true. And it's been remained true for a couple of decades now is uh, crossing the chasm. Mm -hmm. So if you read, if you haven't read crossing the chasm, um, you know, I think it's a phenomenal, phenomenally important thing because it describes that exact process. So if you, for folks who haven't read it, if you think of a, a bell curve broken up, you think about the, the diffusion of innovation. When you're first selling your product, you sell to innovators, which are the long, you know, the small tail of one end of the, of the, the, um, the bell curve. There's not many people there. The people that are innovators will buy your product for different, you know, for a certain set of reasons. The next stage are what they call early adopters. Early adopters are similar to innovators, but they have a different set of needs, wants, and, and desires. There's then a big gap they call the chasm, which a lot of tech companies fall into and never get out of. But if you're now talking in the, the next um, phase, which is the big upswing and the big early market, is called the, uh, the early majority. And the early majority is where you start to, there's a bowling pin analogy in Crossing the Chasm, where if you've nailed the, the first bowling pin and your 10 pin bowling, 
um, and now you want to go to an adjacent bowling pin, that's exactly what you need to do in analysis is um, same product, new market, uh, similar product, um, but, a, but a change to it. So new product, same market. And that's in there's that four dimensions and an ANSOF matrix, right? Markets and products. So I think what is best uh, and what we found best over time is to leverage as much as you can of the, uh, the problem solving and a value creation you're doing uh, in the market that you're winning in, or you've got product market fit and map it over, uh, find the market, the adjacent markets that have the most overlap so that you're not restarting from scratch. I think there's a lot of uh, challenges sometimes for early stage companies because we, a lot of us are builders, that there's this engineering approach saying, okay, this other market now needs this, we're gonna build that. And all of a sudden you've got perhaps two products that are you know, tangentially related. You've got two sets of you know, software to deal with, two sets of problems, two sets of customers, two sets of bugs, whatever it is, and then you go to a third one. And that's a risk that a lot or, or a, a trap that a lot of entrepreneurs get Get, get stuck into. So I think certainly adjacent markets, wherever you can find the most overlap, uh, where the problems you've already solved map to that, because then you are much, much further along the learning curve and the efficiencies. Now you may just be changing and tuning your marketing message. Right. And your positioning. Uh, I think that's the most important thing. Right. Makes a lot of sense. Cool. So we're, we're wrapping things up here. So if anybody listening has any more questions, please fire them in. We'll probably take one or two, but for me, like I have a question that's kind of near and dear to my heart, maybe good to end things off. Like obviously with, with think tech, we've talked a little bit about that. Actually not probably not enough. We'll have to bring you back another time. Um, but, but you've got a lot going on, right. But you also kind of hinted that, you know, you're on the, the AIC council. So, and also like I don't know if it's previously or currently, but you were part of the hyperscale AI program at BC Tech as well, right? And on top of that, you spend an awful lot of time from my vantage point working with whether even if it's us here or or you have, a, I think, a consulting company called Catalyst or BC Tech, and you're involved with all sorts of of places and and and, and programs. And, and I think a lot of it has to do with your passion for, for early stage tech, right? Even though you've built multiple successful companies, like could you expand on like why you're motivated to kind of keep giving back to, to this community at large in a very general sense? Um, and, and why, why, you know, you dedicate an X amount of time. I don't know if it's strategized, but like to advising other founders. Sure. You know, I think a lot of it is just, you know, stage and age a little bit too. It's uh, you know, I was very fortunate early on to have a handful of really good mentors that helped me out a lot, you know, and, and having a couple of good, really good angel investors way back when that you just have this benefit of, you know, them being a little further along, have seen the bumps in the road or seen around the corners. Um, and it's always, you know, it's always been an interest of mine to, to sort of work, give back and, and do a lot of mentoring. And I even, I, you know, I, I make it back to, but I, I taught some courses at the MBA program at SFU and, mm -hmm. you know, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. So that's really my passion. Me personally, uh, I don't recommend this, but I don't have a lot of hobbies. <laughs> you know, I just, I was, I like, my hobby is really entrepreneurship and I love all this stuff. You know, the stuff. The podcasts I read, I listen to the books I read, all this stuff is really around a lot of this. Yeah. Um, I like a lot of brain, I like a lot of psychology uh, and, and sort of, you know, how people think and how they behave. That's always been of huge interest to me. And that maps over very, very nicely to, you know, how do you actually build a company? How do you actually you hire people. How do you, you know, go raise money? How do you market it? All that stuff. So it's just, yeah, it's just a huge passion of mine. I like, I like giving back, like helping out. Um, Cause I was helped out a ton early on mm -hmm. and still am. For sure. 
And definitely, is it, do you think it's something that you recommend for, for other founders as well? I think like the sense that I get from you is, is obviously you give a lot in terms of, of your mentorship, but I think you also pick up bits and nuggets yourself, right? Like is, is there like a method to the strategy in terms of how you plan? Well, whether it's your time or your effort, even as you're building companies, like what's an appropriate time to start actually trying. (laughs) It's funny the way I'm phrasing this question, but, but what's an appropriate time that, that is like, okay, maybe I should talk to one company a month or something like that just to help them along. But that also kind of sharpens my tools. Yeah, I think, and I, I started doing that, you know, quite a long time ago, even, even when we had, you know, our first startups and things, even out of grad school, you know, I had a, a sort of a network of people that we talk to each other and help each other out. I think there's no, you know, you can start as early as you can, you know, building your network is very helpful. I think building when you, when you start to get into a situation where you can advise or mentor other companies or get involved with launch and BC tech and other groups, there, there's also a, you know, it helps your career. There's a bit of a credibility element to it as well. You, know, you get invited to do awesome things like this and give back. Um, but strategically for me, I've always, um, what I try and do and identify and be very, very, very blunt with myself as to where my gaps are and where my mm-hmm. holes are and my weaknesses are and try and find, you know, people that have been there and done that ahead of me. Or even if I, it doesn't have to be older than me, it can be, you know, I, I talked to a lot of folks that are much younger than me that, you know, are more, you know, up on say some of the social media trends and things. And that's really valuable. So to me, it's all about a gap analysis. Where are the gaps? How do I find people to help me with them? Um, I think your the, the time dimension is interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, early starting out, if you've got your own company to run, obviously you have to put your heart and soul into that. But there's also, I find a bit of a, a you know, a, a nice brain break to think about someone else's things, right? It's, yeah. it's easier to edit than to create often. So, so sometimes it's a nice brain switch to talk to someone and help, you know, talk about their problems, almost like you're editing a document, you know, yep. versus having to sit there and create your own things all the time. So it's a good brain switch for sure. Yeah, for sure. And internally, and we used to share this a lot more when there was an office and more people in the office, like we, we have what we call a 70, 30 rule, right? 70% of the time you're, you're completely focused on your startup and things like that. But 30% of the time you're, you're learning, you're advising, you're getting advised. And a lot of times those topics aren't, um, those aren't directly related to the problems that you currently have. Right. But I think right. one, one of Ray's golden rules is like, you don't know what you don't know. And the only way to find out is to put yourself in situations where it's like, Hey, I'm an AI tech. Uh, I'm an AI startup, but I'm going to sit in on this blockchain talk or I'm, I'm building a marketplace, but I want to learn more about e-commerce or something like that. Right. Because you never know when, when it synergizes. And what's, what's so incredible about this time and space we're in right now is the amount of, unbelievably good advice that's available on on these kind of AMAs and podcasts and mm-hmm. and books and blogs. It's unbelievable, you know, how how much education and, and uh, value there is out there. That was, you know, like I I drive back and forth to work and so I take that time and I'm, I'm consuming audiobooks and podcasts and things still to this day because it's, there's all this new information all the time. So as you said, like blockchain and NFTs and all the stuff, you know, yep. got to keep on top of it because it's, <laughs> you know, who knows where things are going to come from. It's not relevant today. It might be relevant tomorrow. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, for sure. Hey, Rob, I really appreciate your time. I think my, my last, last question is like so those who are listening to this, whether they're listening on the podcast much later or they're on live right now. Um, if they're like, I want Rob to be my mentor or I want to have a conversation deeper with Rob, like how and how should they connect with you and what should they connect with you about? Like, what are you interested in? What's your time spend like? Yeah, probably the, the easiest way is LinkedIn. And mm-hmm. it's certainly, you know, definitely started off strong, but has evolved into a very, very, very good tool. 
Um, and it also for business stuff, I find focuses that channel. I mm. give you, I have to give my email out, but it, but it yeah. just, you know, I wh- hopefully you haven't heard it, but I've got 30 emails since we've been on this call. I just, <laughs> ding, 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 ding. So uh, li- reach out to me, honestly, on LinkedIn anytime. Um, yep. And I, you know, and, and just, I think my advice would be to people you reach out to be very clear, right? Be succinct and clear on, you know, what you're, what you're looking for. Um, you know, and what you need help with. And that usually gets my response. I'll be very honest. I'll say, hey, I actually don't know much about that. Or I think this other person might be better suited for it. But I think just be, be, be friendly, um, be very clear. You know, there's the old what's in it for me. You know, there's always a two-way, a two-way exchange. Yep. I don't need anything from anybody, but, but certainly, you know, having someone express how, yep. how they think I could help, that they've done the research a little bit. You know, they've not just pinged everybody in their network, you know, I think that helps too, right? Put a little bit of effort in, a little effort goes a long way in this digital world. Yeah, for sure. I think one of my pet peeves has quickly become, you know, they, they shoot your LinkedIn messages and say, Hey, I'd love to connect. And, and my brain instantly goes to, well, why, right? Like I'm not being arrogant, but, but like, what, how can I help you? How can you help me? Et cetera. Right. Like, like I think getting that mindset and, and having what your ask is early, like, even if your, your personality is more blunt, like I'm okay with that personally. I don't, I don't know about you. Um, but I think yeah. it helps get us into the, the right frame of mind when you're asking for help. Absolutely. That the, the what's in it for me, W I F M hold that with you that like we learned that in you know, marketing school a billion years ago. If you, if you approach everything with that is how can you frame this for the other person and the value that they get, mm-hmm. whether it's your marketing company, what you're writing a website, how you do your sales pitch or how you reach out to mentors. It's probably the best, one of the best things I learned way back is to frame it uh, in that way. For sure. Hey, Rob, this has been great. I know you're, you're really busy. So I want to make sure you give back, get back your time. Um, really appreciate the time you spent here. And for, for listeners, we'll be back very, very soon. All right. Take care, everyone. Perfect. All Thanks, right. guys. Appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Rob. Okay. Bye for now. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.